Hi Thrive, it's good to be with you. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3 today. And let's dive right in. Some context. Um, the key verse in 2 Peter is the last one. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, the theme is how to live a life of faith in a hostile environment. In 2 Peter, the theme is how to grow in your faith. And Peter wants us to grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And we could ask, how do we grow? Well, part of the key to that is in verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that per pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. J. Vernon McGee summed up this by saying, The full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord is the foundation on which Christian character is built. All those, all those virtues in um, verse 5 through 10 of chapter 1, those all describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ better personally, uh, as well as in just knowledge about him, then we will grow in those attributes. So growing in the knowledge of Jesus is the theme of 2 Peter. We grow in the knowledge of who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. And what he will do is a big part of our chapter today. Peter is writing a reminder to his audience. That's important to keep in mind. He is not introducing these subjects for the first time. He's not teaching Theology 101 or even um, Old Testament Prophecy 101, right? He is reminding his audience of something that they probably were taught in person by him uh, before. And we know from the very end of our chapter today that Peter's audience is also familiar with the writings of Paul. So when we, when we go over chapter th 3 today, remember that he's not introducing these subjects for the first time. They, his audience probably has access to the Old Testament. They're probably familiar with the Old Testament prophecies. They've been over these subjects before, probably in person with the Apostle Peter, and they have access to Paul's letters. So probably the only part of the scripture that they did not have access to were the writings of John. So they didn't have the book of Revelation, but they had, uh, they probably had everything else. Peter writes these things. Uh, Peter writes uh, the book of Second Peter as a reminder to his Christian audience as his last word to them because he knows he's going to die soon. So he picks two things that are most important in his mind by the Holy Spirit to remind his audience. The first thing is he's, uh, the first thing, and this is uh, what you guys studied last week, he reminds his audience to beware of false teachers. And he also emphasizes uh, for them, uh, he also reminds them to be mindful of the Lord's return. 
And so think how important the Lord's return must be to the Apostle Peter if that's one of the two things he chooses to write about in his last epistle. And so that sets us up for our chapter today. Our chapter's flow of thought really starts in chapter 1, verse 16. So we're going to start there. Peter takes a detour in chapter 2 to talk about false teachers. But then he picks up that same flow of thought later in our chapter. And so let's start reading with a little bit of review from chapter 1. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Remember, Peter is saying, hey, we saw Jesus transfigured before us. James, Paul, uh, James, John, and Peter were taken up on the mountain with Jesus in Matthew 17 and saw a glimpse of the glory that he will have when he returns in power. And that served to confirm in Peter's mind even more the, the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. When you read this verse, I want you guys to connect the word heed and in your hearts. And so we could, um, we could put this clause in parentheses here. And so uh, a, uh, a paraphrase of this verse might be helpful. Peter says, heed the prophetic words in your hearts until the day dawns and the morning star rises. And what does he mean by day dawning and the morning star rising? We'll talk about that more later. But uh, Peter is saying, we're in a long night right now. And the prophetic word, the words of Bible prophecy serve as a lamp in a dark world, a light in a dark world that will guide us through this life. Uh, light speaks of righteousness and knowledge and understanding, and so darkness speaks of unrighteousness and sin and confusion and ignorance. And so he's saying, uh, look, the world doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. The world can't predict COVID-19. The world can't predict what's going to happen uh, after we get through quarantine. We don't know. Um, we really have no idea what's going on. We can't control any of uh, this world and our lives, um, but the one who can, can, the one who is in control of all things and does know the future, he has given us words that tell us about the future, and that can serve as a guide in a dark place, a light in a dark place. So that brings us to our first takeaway. Be mindful of the return of Christ because it will grow your faith and guide you through a dark world. So pay attention to prophecy. About one-third of the Bible is prophecy, uh, and a lot of that's about Christ's first coming, but most of that is about Christ's second coming. And so it's important, if we want to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's important to also grow in knowing what he will do. And what he will do is laid out for us in large portions of scripture that, uh, to be honest, most, most Christians neglect. Uh, but you say, David, I could spend a lifetime just plumbing the depths of the gospel. 
why should I spend the time uh, trying to figure out the very difficult to understand portions of Scripture? Uh, and Peter Peter admits that a lot of Scripture, especially the prophetic parts, are difficult to understand. He says that about Paul's writings at the end of our chapter. But just because something is difficult to understand doesn't make it worth it. I mean, doesn't make it not worth it. I mean, uh, some of the most worthwhile things in life take hard work. Um, exercise is hard work, but most most people that do so would say it's worth it for having a healthy body. Just uh, and exercising one's mind by stretching it um, is even more valuable. Uh, someone once said, if you think this is over your head, just lift your head up a little. Um, but you say, why don't I spend, uh, all, I could spend all my time plumbing the depths of the gospel and just focusing on that. Well, you will understand the gospel better if you understand Jesus better. The gospel is Jesus, essentially. Salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't just a means of our salvation, but he is our salvation. And so... Uh, learning more about Jesus is just as important as learning um, uh, learning what uh, learning what uh, more about what Jesus will do is just as important as learning about what he has done. Christ's death and resurrection are the Christ's birth, death, and resurrection are the foundation of what he will do in the future, and Jesus' second coming is the consummation of what he has already done. And so it's all related. You will understand the gospel better if you understand more about Jesus' second coming. But when you study Bible prophecy, remember, uh, Revelation 19.10 says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if you are studying prophecy or reading about prophecy and Jesus isn't the focus, you if you're not if you're getting caught up in conspiracy theories and headlines and speculating about political machinations in the world today uh, you're missing the point of prophecy you're missing the very spirit of prophecy okay so our chapter starts uh, and continues this thought um, chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So the first thing Peter wants to tell us is that scoffers will come. Scoffers, in context, I believe he's talking about professing believers. Uh, chapter 2 is talking about uh, people that aren't really believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, pretend like they are. People that outwardly seem to be Christians, but they're really not. These people ridicule the very idea of Christ's return, and they make fun of anybody that uh, wants to study more about the Lord's return. Um, so uh, am I saying, am I saying if you disagree with me on uh, Bible prophecy that you're a, a scoffer and a false teacher? No, absolutely not. Of course not. But 
um, there are people that not that don't just have differing views on Bible prophecy, but ridicule the very idea of even uh, longing eagerly for the Lord's return. And so these scoffers make fun of those who wait eagerly, and they do so. And they do so, Peter says, because they're living for lust. Um, if you are living for your own lusts and your own pursuits in this world, your own sinful flesh, you're not going to want to think about the Lord coming back in judgment. And so that's their motivation for not even, um, not even engaging in the discussion at all, but simply dismissing it as folly and, um, and silly talk. But Peter says they're living for lust, and this is a major theme in Second Peter and the New Testament in general. First Corinthians talks a lot about this. Immoral living will lead to spiritual ignorance, especially about spiritual things like the return of Christ. But conversely, spiritual knowledge will lead to righteous living. So here's our second takeaway. Don't be intimidated by scoffers. Okay, the next part of our chapter continues in verse 5. For this, they, uh, meaning the scoffers, for this they willfully forget, or they deliberately forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what's he talking about here? Peter is saying, the earth was judged once before. Peter is using the language of Genesis. He's directly alluding to the creation account. And he's saying that by the word of God, the heavens and the earth were made. And if you remember... Um, it says uh, God separated the dry land from the water. And he's he saying uh, just a few chapters later, that same earth, um, especially the specifically the world system, was destroyed with that same water. By that same word, the earth is preserved now. Um, God not only made the world by his word, but he upholds the world in its very existence. But also, after the flood, G uh, the Lord put a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his covenant with Noah uh, that he promised never to judge the earth again with water, with a flood. Now, if I told you I promise never to do that again in this way, what does that imply? It implies that I will do it again, just in a different way. And so, God's promise to not destroy the earth again with a flood is preserving this world, but it's also it's reserving this world for another judgment. And so, Peter's point here is that these scoffers willfully forget the word of God and the evidence of creation around us um, proves that cataclysms happen and that the world was judged once before and that's a sign that it will be judged again. Peter continues, 
But beloved, do not forget this one thing. So scoffers will willfully forget or deliberately forget. But Peter is saying, you beloved, do not forget this one thing. So deliberately remember this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why has God delayed for 2,000 years? Because he is not willing that anyone should perish. Our next takeaway is, God does not want anyone to be lost. So why isn't God stopping evil? Why isn't he jumping in to judge the earth and set things right? Why isn't he stopping COVID-19 right now? Why isn't he revealing himself more obviously? Um, God, doesn't not, God doesn't want anyone to perish. And we forget that we all deserve God's judgment apart from Christ. And so if he were to step in right now and set the world right, then everybody that God wants to save would be lost, would be judged in, um, in the very act. Now is the day of salvation. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 through 6.2, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for behold, now is the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation. This passage illustrates that we're in, we're in the economy of grace. We're in the time um, of the we're, in the, we're in the age of grace, where the gospel is going out to all the world. God is patient, he's um, he's allowing evil to continue because evil is um, because evil is being done by evil people, but those evil people are exactly who God wants to save and change and make righteous by um, the Lord Jesus Christ. So COVID-19 is not a judgment. Uh, it's not a fulfillment of prophecy, except in the sense that all sin is a judgment. But uh, God is going to use our circumstances um, to get our attention by, by his Holy Spirit and, um, and uh, bring us to faith in Christ. So now is uh, a time of grace and patience on the world, but that patience won't last forever. Peter continues in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So our next takeaway is, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. Scoffers think the world will continue on as, as it always has been. But the day of the Lord is on its way, and it will catch the world by surprise. Remember, Peter's audience knows these things. Peter is just reminding his audience of concepts like the day of the Lord and the Lord's return. Peter's audience may be familiar with the day of the Lord, but many of you may not be familiar with the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? 
The day of the Lord is a phrase that occurs multiple times in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, Acts, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 2nd Peter. 33 times in the whole Bible. Shortened versions, like the phrase that day or the day or the great day, occur more than 75 times in the Old Testament. One passage that really uh, summarizes what the day of the Lord is all about is in Malachi chapter 4. And so this will give us a sense of what this term, the day of the Lord, means. Malachi says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. And a little bit later on, he describes this as the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So if we carefully study every place in the Old and New Testaments that talk about this phrase, the day of the Lord, um, we can determine that it's not just one day, but a period of time. Uh, and it involves judgment on the nations and restoration for God's people and rescue of specifically the nation of Israel. Okay, let's look at the scope and then we'll look at the theme and what that means for us. Let's look at the scope of the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord encompasses what's called the Tribulation, the return of Jesus to earth, and the thousand-year kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. The Day of the Lord starts with the Tribulation period. This is a period characterized by political upheaval, the persecution of Jews and righteous Gentiles, and ends with cataclysmic judgments like the plagues of Egypt, only much worse and over the whole earth. By the time the tribulation is in full swing, the entire world will know that this is judgment from the God of the Bible. The tribulation ends with the return of Jesus to earth literally, powerfully, and very publicly. He destroys the rebellious nations at Armageddon, rescues the remnant of Israel, and sets up a literal earthly kingdom over the whole earth with its capital in Jerusalem. This kingdom lasts for a thousand years. It's a golden age to close out history on this earth. Under King Jesus, the curse of sin is lifted to a great degree, but mortal humans still populate the earth. Satan is bound at the beginning of the thousand-year kingdom and is released at the end for one final rebellion against the Lord Jesus, but it's quickly destroyed. So that's a brief overview of the scope of the day of the Lord, but what's the theme of the day of the Lord? What's its theological meaning? A brother online put it this way, the day of the Lord is when his dealings and government will not be mysterious or providential as it is during the night but the open and manifest putting down of evil and the maintenance of that which is good. So we're in a long night where God allows evil and ignorance and confusion to roam free. 
And right now, skeptics ask questions like, if God exists, why is he so hidden? If God exists, why does he not stop all this horrific evil? Now, God really isn't hidden. Uh, God's existence is plainly knowable to those who really seek him. But God is not so obvious that people who don't want to see him can't look away. Right now, if you want to believe there is no God, you can find reasons to think so. But that won't always be the case. When the day of the Lord starts, uh, so when the, when the sun rises, so to speak, when the day dawns, um, the, there, won't, there won't be any doubt that there is a God and that uh, he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that period of time will only prove that God's hiddenness wasn't the problem. Um, so uh, people might complain right now, if only God were more obvious. Well, someday he will be more obvious, but those who want to reject him still will. <clears throat> so the day of the Lord uh, starts with the tribulation period and includes the return of Jesus to earth with his saints to establish his thousand-year kingdom. And then the day of the Lord ends as the Lord Jesus transitions this world to what's called the day of God. Uh, Peter calls it the day of God in verse 12 of our chapter. The day of God is the eternal state. This is when uh, evil and sin has been quarantined in the lake of fire for all eternity. And the righteous that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb get to live with God in perfect satisfaction and happiness for all eternity. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15 this way. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Revelation 21 describes it this way, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So we've talked about the day of the Lord and the day of God, but I want to I touch on one thing that, again, Peter doesn't talk about uh, explicitly. He refers to it, but... He doesn't talk about it explicitly because, again, his audience knows these things. His audience is familiar with how these things go down, and he's simply reminding us to pay attention to these things. 
So what should we be watching for? Should we be expecting um, uh, uh, the? Should we be expecting the Antichrist or some judgment from God to show us that we're in the time of the tribulation? Should we be looking for the day of the Lord as Christians? What should we be watching for or expecting? Um, Paul commended the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 through 10, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so while the Bible talks a lot about Jesus coming in power and glory to set up his kingdom, the New Testament also talks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming for his saints. And so we, as Christians, we look for the day of Christ, um, not the day of the Lord, but the day of Christ, which is a phrase that occurs in a few places in the New Testament. But we are looking for the Lord himself to come for us. We are watching for the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles had an eager expectation of the Lord to return for them in their own lifetime. They weren't looking for signs or the Antichrist, or plagues, or wars to indicate the time is near. So just because uh, there's this plague, there's this pandemic all over the earth keeping us indoors, um, we're not looking for something like that to indicate that the time is near. But the time has always been near, and the Lord Jesus could come at any moment. So we Christians should be watching for the Lord Jesus himself coming for us as the morning star. You remember uh, Peter used the phrase, until the day dawns and the morning star rises. Well, the morning star is a concept in the, Lord, in, in the New Testament that refers to the Lord Jesus himself. So what is a morning star? Uh, a morning star is a bright star that's visible in the east just before the sun rises. It's usually the planet Venus rising above the horizon just before the sun rises. And so it's this precursor to the dawn of the day. Jesus calls himself the morning star in Revelation 22. And so Peter reminds us in uh, chapter 1 verse 19, Heed the prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star rises. So we're looking for our ultimate destination in the day of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And we're watching for and expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to come as the morning star and as our ark to take us safely through the judgment of this world to the new heavens and the new earth. So let's recap where we've been so far. Grow is the theme of second peter peter says in order to grow pay attention to prophecy don't be intimidated by scoffers and he reminds us that god has not come the lord jesus christ has not come back yet because god does not want anyone to be lost he is patient not willing that anyone should perish but his patience won't last forever because the day of the lord will come suddenly and the day of the Lord will be a time of judgment on the earth. When Jesus returns to earth with his saints, uh, 
rescuing the remnant of Israel that will come to Christ during the tribulation period. And he will set up the kingdom of heaven on the earth and then transition that kingdom to the day of God or the eternal state. Peter ends in verse 11 by saying, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. To recap these verses, Peter gives us uh, two motivations for godly living and growth. One, we should be looking forward to these things. We should be looking forward to our destination. And we should be found by him in a certain way. In other words, we should be expecting the Lord Jesus Christ. So our motivations for growth in the Christian life are we look forward to our ultimate destination, the day of God, and we expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come for us as our morning star. So the question that I want to leave you guys with is what kind of people should we be? This is the question that Peter leaves us with. What kind of people should we be? given our destination and our hope. So looking forward to these things, we should ask ourselves questions like, in, in view of these things, what should I live for? What should I be living for? Uh, how should I live? And what can I live without? In other words, what can I lose? And it's not that big of a deal because I know where our my hope ultimately lies. It's not in the things of this earth. It's not in um, political movements. It's not in my finances. It's not in the stock market. It's not even in my health. It's not even in my life here because ultimately my life is with Christ. This passage has really encouraged me. It's been a wonderful reminder um, that despite what's going on in the news, my ultimate hope is not in this life, it's not in this country, it's not in this world, it's not in my health or my job or anything like that, but my hope is in the new heavens and the new earth and dwelling with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. So I want to leave you guys with some questions. Number one, when you think about eternity with God, what parts of your life seem less important? What seems less scary? What seems more important? Number two, how can the prophetic word be a guide in your life? Number three, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, according to Revelation 19.10. So Satan doesn't want us to know it. What has hindered you in the past from wanting to know this part of God's word or the Bible in general? And four, if God does not want anyone to be lost, how should that motivate us? Thrive, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact me, feel free to email me or follow me on Twitter. Feel free to message me on Twitter or check out my very neglected website, uh, testing521.com. Thank you.